my orders is to not leave without this Winn-Dixie lease. So we can stay here all day long. And I basically, you know, bullied them into thinking the sky was the limit, even though I did have a limit. We did win and we got it for 1.2 million. So 600 less than what our budget was. So obviously I was very excited because now we have control and we know based on the Staples situation, how valuable our real estate is, right? (laughs) Not so much. So three years later, it's 2009. We all know what happened in 2009 in South Florida and the country that the you know what hit the fan. And I was never able to lease the Winn-Dixie. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, featured guest, yeah, easy for me to say, Beth Azor. Beth, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock, Andrew. Let's do it. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Beth is a 33-year veteran of the commercial real estate industry and owns Azor Advisory Services, which specializes in consulting services, training, sales leadership, coaching, acquisition due diligence, and market analysis. And for those of you who watch some of her videos and see what she teaches about getting out on the street, I love that. Now, Beth owns and manages a $79 million portfolio of commercial retail properties in Southeast Florida and recently wrote and published a book called Don't Say No for the Prospect. My God. And that book's a collection of stories. I was just going through and looking at it as a collection of stories from her career and her career as a retail leasing rock star. And I think from it, we're going to learn a lot about how she closed deals and also this idea of not saying no for the prospect. I remember, Beth, when I was young and my father was still alive, my father used to tell me about the hat trick. And I was like, what's the hat trick? He said, well, when we were in sales at DuPont, my dad was a salesman for DuPont for all of his life. He said, when the client gave the order, get your hat and put it on. Get ready to get out of that room before you talk him out of it. So Beth is also a frequent guest on business and commercial real estate podcasts and hosts a monthly rock star book club call where they review nonfiction business-related books. A graduate of Florida State University, she is also the past chair of the board and founder of FSU Real Estate Foundation. Beth, take a minute, fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, I'm a single mom of two teenage boys, Andrew. And actually currently have two more teenage boys staying with me, helping out a couple families. So uh, it's crazy in my house. I have a, a 19, 18, 17, and 15-year-old boys. So it's a lot of fun. They keep me smiling and laughing and young. So uh, that's my life today, and I, I'm loving every minute of it. That's beautiful. Well, youth brings us so much energy. And so much frustration sometimes. Anyways, <laughs> now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, take, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Absolutely. So I ran a company 
in Miami, Florida. I was there 18 years. I started as a rookie leasing agent, grew throughout the firm and ended up being the president the last six years I was there and started becoming a, a passive investor in deals that my boss slash partner was involved with. And when I left in 2004, my goal was to buy for my own account one property, specifically shopping centers or retail, every two years. That was my goal. And I had my eye on this property even when I was with my former company. It was a property in South Florida. It was called Westgate Square. It was Winn-Dixie and Walgreens, 104,000 square feet. And I had my eye on this property for a long time. And when I went on my own, about a year after I had done that, the property went on the market to be sold. So I uh, was very excited. The seller was selling it for, the price we ended up buying it for was $22,250,000. I went to uh, two partners, two potential equity partners to have them become my institutional partner. One was Kimco which is a large real estate firm in the United States and the Caribbean. And another one was BlackRock, a Wall Street firm. Uh, Both were interested in being my partner. I was going to put down $250,000. We were going to assume a non-recourse loan of $16 million, and they would put in $6 million of equity. I chose BlackRock as a partner because they were going to allow me to lease the property versus Kimco wanted their own leasing team to lease the property. So even though the Kimco deal was a little bit better for me financially, I went with BlackRock because, you know, the goal was that I would manage and lease the property. And, and, you know, I believed a hundred percent that I could turn this baby around. At the time, Winn-Dixie Uh, there were rumors floating that they were going to file bankruptcy. And that was what interested me in buying this property. The goal was that I hoped they were going to file and that we would get control of the property because the property was on the fringe of a very high income demographic. We're talking about 150,000 of income per uh, family. And that's one of the highest in South Florida. 150000 a year. So we buy the property. I think even while we were still under contract, we had found out that it was a Windexy Walgreens anchored center. So we found out that Walgreens was going to move out to go across the street. I was not disappointed with that, even though looking back, I probably should have gotten a price reduction, but they were in 12,000 square feet and they were going to move across the street. They were paying $8 triple net. So $8 per square foot on an annual basis, triple net. We closed on the shopping center, and I immediately start negotiating with three office supply stores. Three office supply stores were interested in the Walgreens. They wanted it to go from 12,000 to potentially 15 to 18,000 square feet. So uh, remember, Walgreens was paying eight. So I think I went out of the box at about 15. All three gave me LOIs or letters of intent at 15. And then it went to 16. And then it went to 17. And then it went to 18. And at one point, we finally stopped at 20. So Staples, Office Depot, and Office Max, all major retailers in the office product industry 
competing for the same space. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got to stop this. You know, they're not going to be able to afford more than 20, you know, plus cam. And the, the cam in my property was 10 bucks. So I said, I called them all up and I said, look, the first guy who agrees to pay rent the day the lease is executed is the guy that gets the deal. And Office Max dropped out. Office Depot said, well, we'll go to committee and ask. And Staples said, we'll do it. So Staples raised their hand and I said, done, you get the deal. So they signed a lease, 20 bucks plus cam. They pay rent the day the lease is fully executed. It took them, Andrew, 14 months to get a permit. So now you can imagine, here I am, and I've just increased the NOI, the net operating income, by a gajillion. So I am a happy camper. Now, when Dixie, sure enough, is getting ready to file, and I have been working this inside source to make sure that I know about this in advance, and they file, and they reject the lease, and we have to go to bankruptcy court because the bankruptcy trustee now has possession of the lease. So one of the most intellectually stimulating events of my career was being in that bankruptcy auction for Winn-Dixie. So I'm in the room. This is before smartphones. I bought the property, by the way, in 2005. So this is about a year later. I'm in the bankruptcy auction, and Walmart a couple Latin grocers that had multiple locations in South Florida and Office Depot. This is an important part of the story. Uh, they're all bidding for my Winn-Dixie, which by the way, their rent was $5 a square foot plus about a buck in extras. So let me just um, see if I can explain this um, the, so, to the audience and to myself. What that means is that Winn-Dixie went bust. They had a lease that could continue on. And so yes. they could transfer that or sell that lease to another and nothing you could do about that. Correct. Nothing okay. I could do about okay. that. That helps so us. I'm in, so I'm in a room in this bankruptcy auction with all of these people bidding for this $5 lease. And we now know what the market is, right? Because I just signed a $20 staple lease, right? Yeah. So and you're hoping and, to God that one of the office companies, what did you say? Office Max? Office Depot was Depot. bidding. They were bidding. And what do you think would happen to my Staples lease if they would have won? Zippo. So I'm in this audience and I came with basically a checkbook of up to, I think we had agreed, BlackRock and I agreed that the value of the lease was probably like 1.8. We would have paid 1.8 million for this lease. So I'm bidding against Walmart, all these attorneys. And literally, Andrew, it's me and an attorney who really not the right attorney for me, but I was pretty savvy. So I'm in this thing. We're bidding against Walmart, these local Latin grocers, and it comes down to me and Office Depot. And the bankruptcy judge takes us in a side room. And Andrew, it was just humorous. It's me and my, like I said, not a bankruptcy attorney sitting next to me. And I'm sitting across the table with eight, eight men like four bankruptcy attorneys and like three or four people from Office Depot. And I said, look, I own this shopping center. Oh, by the way, before we went into that room, Staples was also in the room because they were bidding on other Winn-Dixie properties. And Staples is texting me on my flip phone or on my BlackBerry saying, 
do you need more money? Because they didn't want to lose their lease. And they knew if Office Depot bought the Winn-Dixie lease, they'd be out. So that was great. I'm like, no, I think I've got it. So we go into the room with the judge and I just looked across the table from Office Depot and I said, look, BlackRock is my partner. They're very wealthy. My orders is to not leave without this Winn-Dixie lease. So we can stay here all day long. And I basically, you know, bullied them into thinking the sky was the limit, even though I did have a limit. We did win and we got it for 1.2 million. So 600 less than what our budget was. So obviously I was very excited because now we have control and we know based on the Staples situation, how valuable our real estate is, right? (laughs) Not so much. So three years later, it's 2009. We all know what happened in 2009 in South Florida and the country that the you know what hit the fan. And I was never able to lease the Winn-Dixie. So I talked, you know, I went back to the Walmart folks. I went talked to the local Latin grocers. I talked to charter schools, you name it. And three years later, 2009, we're in the middle of the recession, and I have a balloon note of $16 million that has come due. And we have a servicer that is in charge, and we call the servicer and we say, hey, lender, the property's not worth $16 million. We have an empty anchor. It's worth $12 million. We're happy to give you the $12 million. That's what it's worth. And the lender said, sorry, Charlie. We're not going to negotiate with borrowers, borrowers and set a precedent. This was early on in the recession. We're like, okay, let me try a few more things. I went to a Latin grocer that was interested back at the original auction. And I said to the specific Latin grocer, they had 30 locations in South Florida. What will it take? And they said, give us a million dollars and let us pay cam only for five years. I said, okay. And they said, they called me back a couple of days later and said, no, we don't even want it for that. And we called the lender and we said, when would you like the keys? Because we couldn't, you know, the entire time we were in default. So they kept us on the property until it was probably about six to nine months before we actually handed them the physical keys. But the entire time, because the Staples was paying such a high rent and by now they'd open for business. And all my other local tenants, it was healthy enough to maintain the mortgage and pay all the expenses. So I was never in default, except for I couldn't pay the balloon note. So I negotiated a letter from the lender saying that I was a, you know, I was a good a borrower so that I could use that letter when the recession was over to go buy more properties because Everyone gave back properties during the recession, especially here in Florida. And I was very happy that I thought how important that was to have that letter to say that I was a good borrower. And it was just a balloon note value that was, that had happened. And that whole thing in a way, if it was a normal condition, a normal situation, it's possible that the bank would have extended your balloon note payment, but because it was during the crisis time, they were afraid of moral hazard that other borrowers that they were lending to, if they hurt, got wind of it, they're going to go to them and say, hey, well, you know, and then all of a sudden they've got, you know, a new problem that they've created themselves, correct? A hundred percent. And because it was a CMBS loan, 
The servicers get fees. They're not in the business to be making deals. If that was a traditional bank loan, they would not have wanted the keys back. They would have taken the 12 million and been very happy with it. The property sold three years later for 12 million. Mm. And that's an interesting point about the crisis that happened around the world and particularly in the US is that, you know, the property, uh, let's say mortgage loans as an example, are not really a crisis in most cases because over the long run, they're going to come back. And the volatility of the price of a mortgage loan or of, a, of an asset like a property asset, except in really inflated places, is not going up and down like the stock market. But when you create an instrument of all of these mortgage loans, you create a tradable instrument that all of a sudden could go down by 50 to 100%, even though the underlying mortgages in that instrument are not falling by 60, 70%. But the perception of that is being reflected in the price of the instrument. And so that's a more of a technical thing about what happened at the time of the crisis that caused a lot of trouble. That really, actually, if it was just a normal bank, as you say, they could have extended the terms and they wouldn't have lost money in the long run over that. Exactly. So tell me, what lessons did you learn? If we could just quickly summarize sure. the key lessons. So um, timing is everything. I had a lot of interest when I first bought the Winn-Dixie out of the bankruptcy, but I was arrogant. I was arrogant based on the Staples deal. So Walmart was interested, but they only wanted to pay me eight to 10 bucks a square foot. And I'm you know, looking at them, why would I take eight to 10 bucks a square foot? I just got 20 from Staples. So arrogance, because then I waited. And by the time I waited, the recession hit and the balloon note came due. So I could have had a Walmart two years prior. So my arrogance was a big mistake. The other mistake was in my due diligence, going back to before the acquisition, this property, even though it was on, like I said, the fringe of a very high income submarket, three of its borders are not population. So one border is a park, one border is the Everglades, and the other border is a highway. So even though it's the gateway into this submarket, nationals felt that they want to be in locations with populations that surround the asset. And I didn't appreciate the negative point to that location being three borders of non-population. And I obviously, that was a huge lesson going forward. That was the second, that was the second or third property I purchased on my own. I've now since bought eight more. I pay very close attention to that. Now, where is the population? And am I in the middle of it? Or am I on the fringe? And that fringe property is no longer of any interest to me whatsoever. <laughs> well, let me summarize some of the takeaways that I got from your story and let me know if I missed anything. The first thing that I wanted to take away from it is about the complexity of bankruptcy. So, you know, never underestimate the quagmire that bankruptcy can get you into, whether it's you as a company or you as a, you know, any, any way, the bankruptcy courts can all of a sudden cause things to really go sour fast. 
And so that's one thing to, um, you know, that it can slow down things dramatically or change things with the, the, well, you can see it. Beth can see it. I've got my grandfather's gavel that he had for, I think it was uh, the rotary. Yeah. When he was the president and at the bang of a gavel, a judge can make a judgment on a bankruptcy that, you know, didn't go anyway the way you thought it would. So the other thing that I would like to talk about, since you've already mentioned about the arrogance and overconfidence that's very, very prevalent in most of the mistakes that we make. I just want to talk for a moment about macro factors. You know, sometimes investing, like we set up a coffee business in Bangkok, Thailand, many years ago when I was an analyst. My best friend came and he was like, let's set up a coffee business. And we set up a coffee roasting business and we went into business. We started sales in 1996. And, you know, tiny little business. We spend a lot of money to set it up in a strange country for us at that time. And then the next thing that happened is we had the 1997 financial crisis in Asia that happened to be in Bangkok as the starting point of it. And our whole business, everything imploded. And what that was, was a macro factor. And I would say that it's, it's sometimes, sometimes you just don't know anything about it. But other times, of course, you know, ultimately you're going to pay the price if you don't know that it's coming. And so the macro factors are a big, big thing that we should always think about when we're investing. And it's hard because usually we get into the, the nitty gritty of the deal and we get the deal right, you know, then it's okay. But there are macro factors. And the last thing I just want to talk about is based upon all the interviews that I've done, um, I recommend people follow what I call a six step investment process. And it's going to sound to you like that's eh, pretty standard, but there's one unique thing about it. So the first one is first, you got to find an idea. Second, you're going to research the return. What's the potential of this? Third, you're going to assess the risk. Fourth, you're going to create a plan. Fifth, you're going to execute that plan. And then sixth, you're going to monitor your progress. Whether that's a land uh, investment, whether that's a stock investment. And the key thing about this step about these six steps is that I separate the research on return from the research on risk. The idea being that if there's one thing I've learned from all of my interviews, you, everybody that's getting ready to make an investment needs a devil's advocate. Now it's best if you can get that on your team or if you can get that from someone close to you. Sometimes you don't have it and you have to play it yourself, but the devil's advocate must be focused on what can go wrong and why it will go wrong, and what will be the impact when it does go wrong. And when you get that devil's advocate, I was talking with one person I interviewed that has, it works for an investment fund in London, and they actually forced that discussion in their investment committee, that there's a devil's advocate, and there's a veto power of the devil's advocate on that decision process. So that's what I would take away. Anything you'd add to that? I love that, uh, you know, but I, I would say this, and you know, I just wrote this book, Don't Say No for the Prospect. I think our world is full of negative comments and criticisms. And I meet people all of the time. And I, I'm on a big mission. I want every leasing agent to invest, even if it's only $5,000, because without the leasing folks, and of course, this is my foundation, right? I am a leasing agent. I just happen to also own shopping centers and teach people how to lease space. But I'm a leasing agent through and through. And without leasing agents, there would be no developers. There would be no shopping center owners. There would be no, you know, architects of shopping centers. 
but they're the ones that are the least individuals that are investing and making money from shopping centers, from shopping center ownership. So I, when I'm traveling and doing my training and my workshops, I have lots and lots of leasing people and people in the commercial real estate industry, I want to buy. Well, why aren't you buying? Well, you know, I might lose money or, you know, there's this risk or that risk. Then the devil's advocate comes out. So I would say, Andrew, I would rather go for it and make mistakes and even lose money than to never go for it ever because that's just not how I like to live. So I appreciate the devil's advocate position, but, and probably again, here comes my arrogance. I would probably not pay attention or listen to it. And probably (laughs) there will probably be more money to lose in my future, but hopefully I do learn lessons. But I just think I have seen that it's really, really, really easy to be the devil's advocate and be the critic. And it's really, really, really hard to be the dreamer and the executor of the dream. Beautiful. And that's why I invite you on as the guest to get your opinion on it. And I love it. Uh, So great stuff. Just one thing I want to step back. And since, you know, you do a lot of training and, and you are trying to help people improve their business, improve themselves. Um, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Do their homework. Number one, do their homework. Right. Do their homework because you can have all the devil's advocates in the world, right? And I think that the world is full of, you know, I let my attorney look at this document. I let my, you know, a lot of people outsource things in due diligence. And I think it's important that the individual who's signing on the note does their homework. And, it. and, it's, and it's very easy to, to put that off on another team member, right? Exactly. Fantastic. I like it. Do your homework. Well, my last question is, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? To get every leasing agent I know to invest in properties. Beautiful. Even $5,000. Beautiful. You know, 10% of every commission check, put it in a secret account that you cannot touch. And at the end of the year, you know, let people know that are buying deals in your market that you would like to invest. And hopefully someone is going to let you jump on that train and that ride. Someone gave me a chance many years ago and other people should give other people chances to invest. Fantastic. And of course, as you're doing that, Make sure you're doing your research on what you're investing in. Beautiful. Well, there you have it, listeners. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Beth, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Don't let this discourage you. Keep doing it. Keep investing. You know, it's okay. It's okay to lose sometimes. If hopefully the winning column, my winning column far exceeds my losing column. So take a chance and go for it. And Andrew, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And the next time or in the future, when I visit Thailand, I'm going to look you up. Amen. Well, my mother and I will invite you over for a cup of tea. How about that? Well, that's a, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.